Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, guys, depending on what time you're listening. This is the podcast realm after all, and welcome to How Did I Get Here with me, Sam Lax. Basically, a show that sees me sit down with some epic and inspiring people and just have a great chat about their life, how they've got to where they are today, and basically everything in between. So, this week we have an incredible chat to tuck into with a chap called Chris Greenwood aka Madeira Verde and he is the champion of what we call World Music 2.0 and I discovered him on SOAS Radio when I used to be at UCL and got hugely into his mixes and stuff like that and his live radio shows and basically reached out on Facebook and said Chris I'd I'd love your music, would love to sit on a show and met him through that, got on well and off the back of that asked him for this interview so it was an incredible sport and had me over to his house in South London and that's where we join conversation I was basically trying to run before I could walk this is, I shot it as if it was a, a visual documentary so I'm not mic'd up so I apologize I'm a bit quiet but uh, other than that the conversation's riveting and we talk about everything in his journey in the music industry from his early entrepreneurial ventures selling soggy wood in barns with a mate to when he fell in love with music at vinyl techs in Brussels with his mum to DJing in the Hamptons, to running uh, Bar Rumba or programming for it where he had people like Wesley Snipes drop in and Bjork coming in to sing and kicking it with the Beastie Boys in New York, like just a crazy life and running club nights and clubs and festivals and everything in between. So I will not spoil any more and I'll let you uh, enjoy it for yourself. We jump straight into it and we're talking, we're in his living room, we're talking about his incredible vinyl wall. And again, like I say, because it was a visual doc, there's a few references. We're looking at the wall, so I apologise. But basically, imagine this, I, I would say, 15 metres, maybe 15 metres by four, 15 by three wall. And it's just stacked with vinyl. And I'm terrible at judging distances, so that would probably be awfully wrong. But it's incredible. I'll, I'll uh, have a photo on, on the website so you can check that out, along with... All the links to Chris's radio show, his mixes, and his new venue that he runs now called Louis Louis, which is in South London, so you can check that out. And it's a wicked bar, come cafe, come restaurant, with fantastic music and DJs, as you can imagine. Expect no less from Chris. So without any further ado, let's tuck into this brilliant chat with Chris Greenwood, a.k.a. Madeira Verde. Wonderful. And uh, whereabouts are we now, Chris? So we're in my house uh, in South London been here for eight years and uh, as you can see the tools of the trade quite a collection indeed quite a collection I'm, I'm really pleased I didn't throw them away or sell them when a lot of people did with their collections uh, a few years back I did have a lot more I was gonna say is this is this total is that like one deep or is that so, oh wow now I can see now they're stacked but horizontally that's incredible I think there's about 30 per box 40 maybe 40 or even 50 per box actually wow. I never counted it but I did have about twice as many but I had to uh, so it's a lot of work lugging them around yeah I can imagine Jesus Christ and, and you need to they... put them along uh, you know a supportive wall and how are they ordered are they are they is it easy to get no not really um, because when I DJ I pull stuff out and then they end up in piles various piles along the floor on the bottom and in boxes and but you know from time to time I stick them in categories mm. So, you know, reggae or 12-inch mm-hmm, mm-hmm. disco, but doesn't, doesn't last. Do no, not really. <laughs> Incredible. So how long 
so you've got a set. How long do you spend looking at records before? How long are you? Um, well, I used to obviously spend far too much time and money in record shops. Um, I just, you know, it's just something about vinyl. I know it sounds really cliched and boring and uh, probably something, you know, a lot of guys my age in their early 50s say. But, you know, the sleeve, obviously, you know, with artwork, you know, you always have that opportunity to have, you can say much more about the record. Obviously, you know, when it went down to a CD, the artwork potential was much smaller. Yeah, it took a back um, seat, I suppose. But then, you know, even like, well, this is a record we made and this was a bit of artwork that someone did for us for the middle inspired by the song Amazing. she's an illustrator in Berlin she's like um so I think she's a film director now awesome. but um yeah so uh and then obviously from CDs to d downloads I guess it's kind of gone back to where you can have bigger artwork mm. now on screen but it's not it's not physical isn't it it's not mm. it, uh you know, on screen. I suppose it's better than on CDs. I must say, I never really like CDs. No, I don't, yeah, it seems to be plastic. Yeah. Too much plastic. It's yeah. very temporary. I don't know why. Yeah, More temporary than a digital a file. Or something. The lid always broke. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. when I was involved Flimsy. in record labels, we always favoured the cardboard sleeve uh, rather than the plastic. Digipack, it's called. Looks more classy, I think. I think so, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So what, what is it? What do you do? How do you fill your time these days? What are you up to? Can I ask how old you are? Is that I'm 52. 52. And what um, do you fill your time with? So right now I'm working on a new bar. Awesome. Uh, just up the road here um, on the Woolworth Road, mm -hmm. SE5, which is a little bit, feels a bit like Kingsland Road felt uh, about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I think it's, I've lived around here for, for 20 years actually. And I've, I've always liked it. So we're sort of between Elephant and Castle and Camberwell Green for people who don't know the area. And it is really, it's, there's loads of independence stores, not many chains. I mean, the only chains you've got is sort of Iceland, um, Peacocks. There is a Marks and Spencers, but it's, you know, there's no Costas or Starbucks. So I'm working with some guys who've got a cafe around the corner called Folds, which is a really nice little coffee shop. And they're around the back in Addington Square, which is a, a nice little square in the area. And uh, we got talking, I, I gave them a hand with their licensing um, because um, of my experience running bars and stuff and what they needed because they were trying yeah. to get an alcohol license. So we got yeah. talking, we was like, oh no, I kept saying, oh, it's so, so much, it's time for someone to take the plunge and do something along Woolworth Road. Because the rents are still cheap. And so we've got, we're still waiting on the keys because we've got squatters in there at the moment. Oh yeah. <laughs> so we've been delayed by about two months because the squatters are in, and um, it's uh, it's an interesting one because I sympathise with the squatters, but I'm also really pissed off about it. So it's a sort of um, suddenly feel a bit like a Daily Mail reader um, because we really can't get them out, you know, and it's taken two three months and they're still in there. It's a long time, yeah. And um, Anyway, so when we finally get this place up and going, it's going to be a coffee shop during the day, mm -hmm. uh, strong Wi-Fi, you know, trying to appeal to people who want to work in this sort of, you know, outside the home, uh, but not in an office kind of environment, which is obviously quite popular at the moment. Mm. And in the evenings, we'll be doing um, resident kitchens, so people coming in. So a bit more than a pop-up, so a kitchen team will come in and do... Uh, 
do, do, a, do a food offering for say six months to a year depending on how it goes and so that means we can keep keep changing the food it'll be sort of casual dining and then good cocktails good drinks but from my point of view what i'm really excited about is uh, we're going to do vinyl only djs who are going to be behind the bar so like bartenders they're going to be serving up the music and we're also looking at doing um a really good sound system mm. like a klipsch hopefully if we can afford it which is a really beautiful amazing uh set of components, amps, speakers, well they're mostly speakers, I mean you can spend a fortune on, on audio and hi-fi. Great thing about this is it's really efficient, no distortion, so you don't have to have volume, but no, you can so still you can feel, so you can talk, mm. you, can, you can listen to each other, it's not a dance environment, plus it also means you don't upset your neighbours as much, so you know you can have, a, along a bit, yeah. instead of a thousand watt amp, you can get the same effect with a 30 watt amp. So if you're in close proximity, wow. it's distortion free, you can still talk, but you can really hear and feel the music. Is that why it's got the price tag, I presume? Yeah, it's, it's, it's bespoke, it's valves and it's all that stuff. So yeah, it's quite, you know, it's quite geeky. But um, there is a movement towards that. Brilliant Corners is a venue in Kingston Road that's mm. certainly inspired us. And they've got an amazing sound system. and. There's knights like The Loft, um, who, again, it's all audio quality, hi-fi quality in a sort of public context, which is, which is nice. Awesome. Incredible. So you mentioned there, you sound incredibly entrepreneurial. When you say you've got previous experience, etc. Uh, when, did, when did this entrepreneurial flair um, first rear its head? I don't know. Uh, it's, it, I don't think, you know... Um, if you choose to work in music, um, I think you, you, you've already made a decision that you're going to have to be flexible. Um, and now more than ever, uh, with music not being something you can, you know, it, it never appealed to me to work for a major label or something, because then it, it just felt like, well, you know, when you start talking about artists and music as product, mm. uh, you know, they're, they're fundamentally there's something wrong there. Um, I don't know, I've always, um, I don't know, I've always tried to do things on my own, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's not something I've consciously decided to do, but... Okay, alright, let's rephrase that, what was your first, that you can remember, what was your first entrepreneurial activity? So I think Richard Branson remembers selling Christmas trees or something like that, what was your first uh, go alone? Um, well, I think the first thing I ever did was uh, selling um, firewood in barns. Not too um, far, yeah? Yeah, except that um, me and a friend, we got a van, we bought this wood, which we found in sort of on a local ad in, down in Sussex. And because I, I lived there, my, my, my mum lived down there, my father lived in London. Mm. And so I thought, right, okay, let's do that. Let's bring some wood up. Because I noticed, you know, wood was really expensive. Um, well, when we picked up the wood, what we failed to realize that the wood wasn't dry. So <laughs> we bagged all this wood and we took it all the way to London and uh, tried to sell it. And, uh, and people were like, it's, it's, it's green and wet, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was my first, um, didn't think that one through. That was the first iteration, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it was, oh, it, was, it was heartbreaking. It was backbreaking and heartbreaking. I think we were like 16, 17, I think, because we both just passed our tests and we could um, drive, you know, this small car which wasn't quite a van because I think you had to be older to drive a van yeah, yeah, yeah one of us had our provision on the other one had 
just passed. Incredible. Um, so that was your first taste of the, the bittersweet lifestyle and being Yeah, I mean, it, the first time I promoted something music-wise was in America. I went to New York. Um, I was uh, in a year between uni and uh, school. I um, went to America to Long Island where a friend of mine, his dad was a photographer and was part of this 80s wave of big French photographers who went to New York. Um, and started up L. Um, it was super glamorous, I couldn't believe it. And now I was thrown into this uh, world, Christy Brinkley and Billy Joel and all these sort of people. Wow, how old were you, sorry? I was 18 or seven, no, 17 then, oh, 17, 18. So, and then I, then I went to Durham to do philosophy and that was such a, such a huge anticlimax. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and I mean, Durham was, was kind of a weird place and um, I ended up, DJing there, I brought some music back and we were running a club and um, really didn't do an awful lot of studying. And then come summer again, uh, they called me up and said, hey Chris, you're coming back? Because this was like a summer job in the Hamptons and I couldn't resist. So I said, okay, that's it, I'm going, I'm not staying here. And that's when I sort of decided that, you know, I was going to make, make a go of music business and dance music in particular. And uh, I was in New York at the time of... Um, I guess Electro was just starting and and yeah, so the first thing I did is sort of, I got, got a job as a DJ and they most people just wanted me to play uh, The Cure and English music and I was really like, no, actually, you know, I want to play the music um, of New York, which was a salsa and Electro, I guess, and, and disco. And um, I met the guys from the Beastie Boys who just put out their first record, which was called Where's Cookie Puss, I think it was called. And it was kind of, they were like a thrash band, really. Yeah. They weren't really hip hop. And via them and via uh, friends who were sort of into graffiti and stuff, I just got sucked into that whole world and I thought, this is amazing, you know. Incredible, and this is in your second year <coughs> summer? This isn't even after university, or is this no, once you graduate? No, I, I, no, I didn't graduate. Oh, okay. I, oh, I see. Ah. So the law really much, was too much. Much to my parents' um, shock horror, I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to drop out. I'm going to go and live in New York and make a go of it. So I stayed in New York two or three years, working for labels, DJing. And obviously in the meantime, I was, I was do, working as uh, building, helping build restaurants for various people. So I was kind of involved what in... What do you mean, obviously? <laughs> well, I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something you could... Uh, I wasn't at the level where I could have, you know, uh, earn a full-time living off it. Mm, mm. Um, so just doing what, you know, what I can to stay in New York as long as possible. And then we did a couple of seasons, again in the Hamptons, and then in between working in New York City, just doing what I could. The thing is, at the time, it was really difficult to work legally. And that was one of the problems. Why was that? Because of work visas and stuff Reagan like that. Reaganomics. You know, this was a height of Reagan. Uh, you know, it was 80... Yeah, I guess it was 85, 86. Mm. And uh, there was that film, Green Card. Never seen it. You have never seen it? It's really, it really was like that. You know, you... And I knew a lot of French waiters who were marrying English... Uh, American girls and paying them a purely lot of money. The, oh, purely for the Green Card. There's a film with... Gérard Depardieu, a very, really good French film, mm. which was then remade, called Green Card. So, and it really was like that. And I just thought, I can't do this, I can't go through this, it's just too much. Uh, you really literally had to have, you know, pretend you were living with this girl and uh, have clothes in your wardrobe, you could have visits anytime. It was pretty, pretty full on. So I decided to come back. 
Um, and how old were we now? What were you? So then I came back, 88, 89. With all your vinyl? Yeah, with the vinyl I'd bought. Um, then we did, I did some warehouse parties. Okay, what's, how big are we talking? Uh, give us a proportion of the wall. How big are we talking for your Well, I don't know, it's point? just, I can't remember. But I mean, it's, it was, when I finally culled it down, I, I got rid of two thirds. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was promos and mm -hmm. uh, white labels, which is how um, <clears throat> music was promoted. You know, you used to get, for instance, look, you know, this would be like a white label. So it wasn't, it would be a test pressing or a white label, which wasn't printed commercially, but then sent out to DJs and, and oh, yeah. yeah. I read, I've sadly forgotten most of it. I read last night, a DJ saved my life and heard all the the myths of people melting off the labels and stuff so people don't know which what record they're playing and all of that stuff. yeah they would scratch off the names so people had exclusives so yeah i mean i worked then i came back and i got various jobs again always like music in restaurants just restaurants to make ends meet and music you know which is what i really wanted to do mm. then i was a bootlegger what is a bootlegger for those who don't know well i guess it's a, it's what it was a nice, nice, uh, a nice word, a nicer way of describing a pirate music, you know, because what I was doing, and I always justified it to myself that there was a need for it, but there was a time where, <clears throat> again, working in restaurants, finding music to play was really complicated because this is before CDs, mm -hmm. so we're talking cassettes, mm. and so I, I started making compilations to play in the restaurant. And then um, a lot of people really liked them and said, wow, this music's great. This is before there were like services doing music, background music for people. And it's before there were a lot of compilations. So the compilations were really rare. So you would have sort of like a best of, you know, on vinyl, you know, like, uh, you know, like Pink Floyd or all these bands would have best of. But no one was really putting together compilations like, you know, of a genre of music or they were, they were quite rare. So um, I then had, I was managing a restaurant in Covent Garden and a lot of people in the restaurants in the area were saying, wow, this is great. Can you make us a cassette? Can you make us? And I was like making a cassette and then copying, you know, like one of these things that you've just got take to tape. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, then this, this dude came in and he was selling cassettes, these mixes, and they were really bad. And he was selling them for like, you know, a lot of money at the time. I was like, hang on a second, I can do this. So I started doing that. And um, yeah, obviously it's completely illegal. Don't, do, yeah, don't do this at home, <laughs> kids. Because this, you know, you, you, obviously, yeah, this is early piracy, I guess. But it was sort of tolerated because it was like cassettes were tolerated because I think it was perceived that, you know, you, you were kind of promoting music in a way, maybe. That was, anyway, the argument I used. I suppose that would be the same argument that's used today with stuff like Pirate Bay, digital downloads. You would say you support your artists by seeing them live. Well, no, because then, you know, the difference with me was that I would do that, but then people would have to get that music. They couldn't just go and download it. They would have to go and buy it because these cassettes were, you know, few and far between and only in bars and shops and stuff. So your, your reasoning is that because it was a small source that... Yeah, well, you know, probably, obviously I could have, you know, someone could have made a, a case out of it for me. But where, where it re sort of made my break, as it were, was mm. there was a Prince Black album, which was uh, a release that Prince did. And a friend of mine worked at um, 
HMV as a buyer and he got sent this Black Album and he gave me a copy. And then a week later, um, Prince withdrew it and decided he didn't want to release the album. I mean, maybe he was just being crafty and just was, it was just a hype thing. So all of a sudden there was a few copies of this Black Album were in circulation on cassette, that was it. Yeah, this is pre-uploading and sharing. So I had one of these masters. And the guy was sort of, I remember saying to him, saying, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, technically I need to return my copy to the label. But you know what, just, I, I, I haven't, you know, I don't know who you are and we, yeah, haven't, yeah. we haven't had this conversation. Like, okay. So I then proceeded to copy this uh, album quite, you know, but still at home just with cassette to cassette and stuff. And yeah, I sold quite a few of them. Um, until such time that other people, you know, decided to do it. But having done that, it got me, I got to meet a lot of people with shops and stuff, even like clothes, clothes shops like Whistles. And then Whistles asked me to, com to, to program music for them. So they would buy like multiple cassettes of jazz and different mixes that I would make to, to play in their, in their stores. So then I thought, well, hang on, this is a really good thing. I should do this, I should really do this legally and see if I can do it properly. Mm. And then I looked into it and basically to license each track at the time, you know, music still had, you know, more, much more perceived value than today. And it would have been, you know, for each track used, you would have to pay in advance. You'd have to agree a rate. And it was like five, even at the time, five thousand pounds per track. So it was totally prohibitive. And, um, then the next step was, I guess, labels started to realise, well, hang on, this, these, these people want compilations, you know, they, and this is a way of introducing artists and sounds, and it's, you know, it's a good thing. So then the whole compilation thing kicked off. And the first one, Ministry of Sound was one of the first to do it. Because um, at the same time, I was also asking DJ friends to do me mixes. And again, this is before RA, this is much before, you know, you could get a, a DJ mix. And that... That was obviously also pretty, you know. Very popular, sure. Yeah, yeah. and I had mixes from um, Westbam from Berlin. I remember him doing me mixes, and some of the Brian G and some of the early um, the uh, the early pirate guys. And that was another thing I just I started doing was recording shows in New York. People were recording shows in New York or LA for me, and sending them to me, and I would record pirate shows here and send it to them. So we were kind of swapping uh, pirate radio broadcasts. Um, and those were really cool mm. and people really liked them. Especially like, I mean, I remember I had one with NWA when they used to do a show. I've got it somewhere here. That is incredible. And it's like NWA doing a radio show um, with all the ads and stuff. So th that was kind of evocative and, you know, linking up radio as well. That is incredible. So that leads nicely on to the word evocative, leads nicely on to my next question of, what how did you feel when you were involved in the music business what how did it make you feel like when you listen to a new track or you found a new album or artist like how did that make you feel if well because i you know i was a working dj and djing in clubs maybe two or three nights a week there were different you know i'd have different set of ears on so if you, you heard a good dance track or you knew oh this is going to work really well with this record you're going to be able to mix it in and, and, and it's really well produced and this is a great this is great for work 
obviously if it's something you know just great to listen to you know it's mixed emotions it's like i don't know you, you, you i mean usually you feel good but um um yeah it's, it's exciting if you find something new so when i was involved in a and r with, with my own putting out records then obviously if i heard something that i thought wow this is really great this is this is really interesting fresh and you know i think we can press this up and sell some so you know different different reactions so either you know practical financial or just purely emotional but uh, i mean you know i get sent a lot of music through because of the work on the radio i you know i do get sent quite a lot of music and uh, you know i really try to i really force myself to listen to everything just in case you don't so you don't miss something you never know yeah you yeah. never know i mean i i one the one time it really really annoyed me was when I, I was doing Cargo, my, the club in Shoreditch, and uh, we moved office, and um, <laughs> we were moving office, there was a big box of cassettes, which I never listened to, and there was a Groove Armada demo. Oh, I was like, oh God. And at the time I was in Groove Armada, and I was just like, and that, I remember thinking, you know what? You just gotta listen to everything. <laughs> but cassettes was more of a pain in the ass because you know to put it in fast forward you know and obviously with a online it's really easy even vinyl is easier to listen to because you can skip quickly mm. cassettes were a pain in the ass fair enough so lesson learned from that one then lesson learned yeah listen to everything you never know and and with with the club now bedroom bar where we put on a lot of live music it's sort of i wouldn't say entry level but you know bands still finding their feet mm -hmm. again just got to force yourself to listen to it mm. you know sometimes it's like you know you just i just don't want to hear another and, and you i mean you can you know i know this sounds kind of can sound a bit pretentious but you can you know within the first five or ten seconds more or less but not always mm. so yeah you have to you have to and also you know if someone's taking the trouble to send you music especially if it's you know someone off their own back mm. i think you kind of owe it to them to yeah. yeah, have a listen. Good, some good DJ mantra. I like it. <laughs> yeah. right, I'm going to backtrack a tiny bit and Go uh, I'm going to refer to our questionnaires. Um, okay, so from what you've said about going moving to the States, into New York, I reckon this might have answered it, but I wanted to ask, what was the first time that music properly registered with you and you thought, this could be something I would like to pursue for the rest of my life? Well, actually that happened earlier. Okay. The first... The first time I really got obsessive about music was uh, I was brought up in France and Belgium and in England, moved around quite a bit. And my mum... Why was that, by the way? My, my dad would work for the Council of Europe and um, British Council and uh, EEC. So he's, he was just like a, a diplomat, but he's um, Europe, on Europe level. Mm. Not... not um, yeah. So we were in Belgium, um, I think I was 10 or 11, and um, my mum enrolled, she, she took me to a, a, a vinyl tech, it was called. So it was a music library on vinyl. And that's the first time I came across like vinyl. Because I know, I used to listen to her records a lot. And she had some Mars Davis and some Beatles and sort of some French Brassens and various uh, bits of music and she noticed that I was quite obsessive about, about listening to it and on headphones I was so she got me to this um, this place in, and this was in sorry Belgium in, or in Brussels, Brussels, in Brussels in Brussels Belgium and then you could take out records for two or three days at a time mm -hmm. 
and I would just go, I was completely obsessive about it. And I just, I, you know, that's when I discovered Bob Marley, that just blew my mind. Um, and I just kept, you know, and, and reading the sleeves and I was really obsessive about it. Started recording everything. So I was recording, recording, recording. So that was an early time I got obsessed. Lots of late fees from that library, I can imagine. Uh, you know, I, I think, <laughs> I, I don't know. No, I was always just desperate to get more stuff. So. Uh, so I really just listened to so much stuff and then um, went to boarding school, I think I was t uh, 12, 13, maybe 13 or 14 and I discovered John Peel and, and I had a tiny little radio and I'd listen to John Peel like every night in bed, I wasn't supposed to, but just you know one of those tiny little radio things with one ear, tiny piece and um, I mean I, know, I think a lot of people probably can credit John Peel as a as an influence for getting into music or into, into dance music into sort of popular music mm. and the music biz. What was it about it for you? What 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 emotions did it evoke and what really oh, it's just you know, it's just it's just I don't know, it's just really exotic and evocative and just just loads of emotions, you know, just so many emotions being expressed in three minutes in one track. Um, the lyrics, the, just, uh, yeah, it was just like um, really interesting, you know. So I remember, you know, first coming, I was a bit, it was just the tail end of punk. So I missed out on punk. But it was when like New Wave came along, which kind of got a bit funky. I mean, bands like The Slits. Um, I recently met Dennis Bavel, I interviewed him, who produced. Orange Juice, he, he produced a lot of those post-punk bands. Mm. The Clash, Spanga Ballet, all that sound, which was kind of started getting really funky. And that also the mixture of that sentiment in um, jazz funk, which is a particular style of soul and disco from, from this country. Mm. All the pirate radio stations like Greg Edwards. And, I mean, Tony Blackburn used to play a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been lucky enough to meet him and he plays a lot of, a lot of good yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and now, you know, my show on, on My Soul, I, Greg Edwards is on the same, you know, he's on a few hours after me, which is like amazing. Because, you know, he, he was also, you know, pirate radio I always thought was fascinating. Um, the fact it could be on and off and people nicking each other's transmitters and... I mean, it is a bit like Corrupt FM mm. in some ways, but it was also, um, yeah, people really wanted to push the music out there. It was mm -hmm. like, it was kind of <laughs> evangelical practically. Incredible. Yeah, that's so, so that's inspiring. That was inspiring. And I suppose there was indie labels like uh, doing it and um, things like uh, Stiff Records, or Rough Trade. Mm -hmm. You know, I, got, I was just, just fascinated by all of that. There was also the world labels like Stearns, um, so doing the the African thing. Mm. I was always really interested in. I mean, John Peel used to play an awful is, lot yeah. of 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 African music. I see. So my next question was going to be how how did you open the door into world music? When did you start getting well? Really Bob Marley. Well, I, lo I loved reggae the, from ten, eleven, mm. and then with listening to John Peel, you know, he used to play a lot of music. Like the Bundu Boys was one of the bands he used to champion a lot. There was a label called Earthworks mm -hmm. who put out some 12 inches alongside Rough Trade. I still play them out. Mm. Um, Sukus music from the Congo. This amazing dance music. I mean, dance music has always been what 
where I've you know been more drawn to mm. and then I mean Latin I got really got into Latin in New York that that was fantastic and I remember one comment when I was DJing in New, in, in Long Island and I was and there was a lot of I mean it was a bit like the, the Wolf of Wall Street that era big hair big shoulder pads and kind of these kind of guys who had a, a lot of money and this guy came up to me and I was DJing he says why are you and I was playing some salsa or something he says why are you playing this and I'm like why not he said this is what you know this is what my, I hear this every day this is what my maid plays I, you know I'm in Long Island I, I don't want to listen to this you know this is like what I listen to every day in New York and you know I, I was you know finding it exotic and, and for him it was just like the background to his daily life and then he said said tell you what I'll um I'll give you $20 if you play some Bruce Springsteen, um, born in the USA. And I think I said to him, I'll do it for 50. <laughs> and he gave it to me. And he went back down and I could see he'd obviously said to this girl that, you know, okay, I'll dance with me. And she said, oh, I'm not dancing to this. And he was like, give me the thumbs up. And I felt a little dirty, but $50, you know, it's $50. <laughs> oh, brilliant story. That's great. I suppose that, that segues perfectly into... Uh, my question about what are your fondest memories from that time in the States? What are, your, what are moments that you'll never forget? I think um, meeting uh, the Beastie Boys was pretty cool. Yeah, that's got to be up there. Um, yeah. And I, there was a friend of mine who, who uh, was on the periphery of the, the dance music scene and made his money in, um, shall we say, what was considered part of the music scene at the time. Anyway, he his his flat was right next to a place called the Fun Gallery, which was the first um, first gallery to do street art. And there was Futura 2000, Fab Five Freddy. Um, all these guys used to hang out there, and I could just remember the smell of uh, the smell of paint of cans. You know, you could there was constantly that. It was really hot in the summer. You know, uh, the windows open with the fans going and. That was a really strong, strong memory. And I, I remember I had one of these kind of boxes and there was a guy called J-Star and he, he painted the box for me. You know, he sprayed it up. So I said, hey, will you do my, my box? I'm so annoyed I lost it because it was such a nice, it was really that kind of Buffalo Girls, Malcolm McLaren. And he, I suppose, Buff, Malcolm McLaren made it popular over here mm. but that that was just so exciting I was just like I can't believe I'm living through this you know mm. so that that was pretty amazing well, I don't think my that summer so we yeah we used to work work the, the Hamptons in this in the in the the weekend and go in me and a bunch of guys and and, and just tr so, soak in all this stuff downtown and buy records and take them back out at the weekend we did this all, all summer incredible and excuse my ignorance what is what is the hamptons okay the hamptons is it's long island it's it's an area there's east hampton west hampton south hampton where i guess the rich manhattanites um go and have houses i mean it's all that sort of great gatsby kind of vibe big white houses colonial i mean you know old money well old American money, and, that's where you and then so that was where the clubs were, and that's where people used to go out to at the weekend. It was the place to go, and if you see the Wolf of Wall Street, that's where you know he he these people party, and then also you had sort of people maybe you know with less money would get club together and and hire 
uh, a house for the summer and then sort of timeshare it and then go out and party every weekend. But it was very much part of that sort of social scene. I mean, fashion, uh, music. And uh, we, I used to DJ in this place, which was like, a, it's called Conscience Point Inn. And it was actually an old disused um, boathouse. And um, it was a restaurant really, but we we decided to bring some decks out and start playing. And I remember Mick Jagger coming, Grace Jones, and obviously for us, this was just hilarious. You know, we couldn't believe it. Yeah, of course. And what were they like? Were they were they like myths and legends or were they just humans when you actually met them? No, I didn't meet them. I mean, we were just but, DJing. They yeah. were there, you know, and but everyone, it was, everyone was checking each other out. You know, it was, it was a big, it was the scene. But who's who? Kind but of then, then we, the time we came out, we brought one of the Beastie Boy guys out with, with J-Star and, uh, and I can't remember, there was a few of these rappers and they were kind of rappers, breakers and graffiti artists and we decided to do this sort of live painting and uh, it didn't go down well at all. Again, it was that like, what are you doing? You know, this is what we see every day. We, we want to escape from that. So we kind of totally misjudged it. And when I say we, it was me and another English guy mm. and uh, whose dad was, he was French English like me and then uh, a few other people. So we weren't from New York, you know, we, we, we were part of the imported sort of white trash I guess Englishman in New York <laughs> Euro trash or Euro whatever trash. they called us yeah incredible and what was the best gig you've ever played when you were there um, can you describe it I think they were all really good just DJing in this place was fantastic um, mm. and we would just go on until whenever and sometimes it would just carry on and sometimes it wouldn't and this is I mean gig Euro. wise gig wise I remember would that I can remember um, King Sunny Ade was an amazing show. Um, Whereabouts was that? In New York. Yeah. Uh, James Brown. I saw James Brown and he wasn't quite sort of, he'd kind of gone out of favour. He wasn't at the time. And it was this club called, I think, the Lizard Lounge. And, and, and there was, must have been, we could have been 50 people watching a whole James Brown show. And that blew my socks off. Incredible. I was going to say, what was Parliament, P-Funk, that was amazing, at the Roxy, which was a roller disco. That was uh, pretty incredible. These, these huge grown men in um, massive platform shoes and big bellies hanging out, sort of rocking out. I mean, it was like a hard rock gig. George Clinton, Bootsy Collins, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. That's very surreal. I can, I can imagine walking yeah, into, yeah. rolling into that and being like, "Yeah." Where the fuck I was pretty much again. Me and the, our English, my English buddies, were the only white guys there. Mm. But you didn't feel like you were out of place. Another really good gig was Trouble Funk in Washington. I went down to Washington. The whole, um, what's it called again? That style of music. Asking over my mind, but anyway, there was this big scene in Washington. Mm. Trouble Funk was one of the big bands, mm. Mm. and um, it became pretty big here as well. It was a sort of like rolling funk style music, and at the time, Washington was really in the grips of PCP. I think that was the drug of choice, which is Angel Dust, mm. and uh, these gigs, people were smoking it, and you could smell it. It was strong and it was it was it was pretty intense. But it was good was a good gig. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know. 
basically, I remember these these bands would sounded like they would just be playing maybe two tracks or three tracks, but they would roll each track would go on for like half an hour. Wow. Yeah. And very percussive. To just get you into a trance-like state. Very, yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing. You know, yeah. it's quite. Yeah, it's quite. It's very tribal. Very sort of like a Felicuti gig maybe, which I and sadly I never managed to see Felicuti, but I can imagine mm. you know where the tracks go on for at least 20 to 30 minutes yeah incredible so cool so let's fly back to England then so here we are you've done your your mixtaping you're on this verge how old are we when we were doing the mixtaping stuff like that mm, early 20s early 20s okay and have you started a club uh, a club night of your own yet because I'm, I'm building up towards the festival so I no um, when did well you start I did somewhere I did I did yeah you said warehouse, warehouse. Called, it was called De-Stress and it was not far from here and um, did a couple of those with some friends from Durham. After they graduated, I hadn't. By this time, I'd come back to London with not my tail between my legs, but no green card. And, and just I just gave up on the whole idea of America being legal. It was really annoying. After a while, just just couldn't open a bank account. So it was all cash all the time, and you know, it just it just kind of I thought off. Oh, Stuff like this. Mattress kind of thing. Yeah, because, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't really progress without this green card. You know, it was Reagan, the Reagan days were pretty, you know, it's like equivalent to Thatcher here. It was, you know, greed is good. It really was pretty tough. Pretty bleak. For, yeah. Bleak, yeah, it was bleak. You know, you think of Gil Scott Heron music, that really Reaganomics, um, Rerun was a track that about Reagan's uh, re-election. And how depressing it was for, for uh, you know, especially the black population in America. They that was a significant um, bummer moment. Mm. So yeah, I did this club called De-Stress. Um, we got <laughs> robbed by our own security company. So uh, they took off with all the cash. Um, so we thought, right, okay, forget that. Um, and then I started DJing at the Dome in um, Islington which is now a Byron's, I think, one of the first Byron's. And I was DJing in there and playing a bit of everything. Yeah, then I started doing all this Latin music because I brought back a lot of Latin music and started working with uh, in a place called Bar Madrid. I, I think all this came through my tapes, actually, because the tapes were really good. People were like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's got this ethnic weird music. So this is the, t <laughs> this is the time of the Lambada. Uh, uh, elaborate, the time of the Lambada. You got yeah, obviously it's yeah, got, before yeah. your time. Yeah. Anyway, it was a sort of really cheesy record. Mm -hmm. Not quite as bad as the Macarena, but close. Oh, and it was also time the Gypsy Kings. Yeah, I love the Gypsy Kings, but I've never heard of the other one. <laughs> well, there was a Lombard and the Gypsy Kings. So anyway, it was sort of a Latin sort of uh, moment, um, and um, Latin venues became sort of you know a bit of a trend in UK. And I got involved with a group of um, uh, restaurateurs who, who, who were into that. So we had um, Bar Madrid, then there's one called Ray Camino in the King's Road. There was, well, Camino Ray, which is, means King's Road uh, in Spanish. Then Bar Cuba in Kensington, uh, then Salsa in Charing Cross Road, which is still there. And then a series of places called Havana. Um, and so uh, I started programming Latin bands, Latin DJs, and dance classes. So that was this kind of combination, this sort of formula. 
um, which I kind of fell upon, that, you know, you're going to play this music, but people don't know how to dance to it. So if you do a little dance class, it would be a free dance class, then a band, because you could dance, you know, Latin bands you dance to, mm. and followed by a DJ. So we do variations of that. So there'd be like Cuban style, then there was Colombian. There's a strong Colombian community here in especially South London. Mm. So we took, it was kind of like taking the Colombian and Latin scene out of the, the dias, you know, diaspora mm -hmm. of uh, the communities, uh, the Ecuadorians, the Colombians. Um, not many Cubans uh, at the time, really, in the UK. But Cuba was becoming more and more evocative and popular and um, you, you had the Buena Vista Social Club thing was just starting up the Afro-Cuban All-Stars. So, yeah, it became really popular. And, you know, that concept of a dance class, uh, band DJs, obviously people dancing together, it's very, in a club context, you know, it has all those connotations of, you know, being able to meet someone. It was sexy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it became more and more popular. So I started building a network of DJs and uh, teachers and, um, you know, we got up to about 12 or 15 venues we were programming. So wow. these bands were moving around, the DJs were moving around. So it was Brazilian, you know, and then you had Foro, which was the North Brazilian style of dancing. Foro, which comes for, from For All. And it was basically the style of music that uh, the slaves would dance on a Sunday, which was one day they'd have off, mm -hmm. and it would be a day of feijoada, which is a you know, you know, traditional stew. And so these four oars, and this is wonderful music and a beautiful style of dancing. It's, it's quite folkloric, but it's got elements of sort of African. It's very different from samba. Mm -hmm. And then you've also got uh, another style of Brazilian music called sertaneja, which was um, country music so the brazilian you know just in brazil there'd be all these different variations and similar with the 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 salsa you'd have more cuban more colombian or the more new york style so there's a real wealth of stuff you could you know so start with you'd have the free dance class uh, and that get people in early straight off to work and uh, that you know format became i guess something that a lot of people would then, it did get diluted and there was more and more and more of it. But, you know, I was happy to be part of that. It was, you know, made sense commercially. Um, okay, it was some, some of it was more cheesy than others. But then some of the other sessions that I was involved in, there was one called Sunday School at a place called Villa Stefano, where the dancers were just incredible. And it was sweaty. It was like a, you know, low ceiling, dark and full on and all about just all about dancing and there were some some really great djs uh, at the time tomek dave hucker john armstrong a whole heap of them who you know were sort of pioneers of that style and um yeah that led me on to bar rumba mm. which was initially going to be a latin venue seven days a week but i think at the time i was also involved in doing i started djing at the wag club and I was going to Dingwalls, which was a jazz session with Charles Peterson and Patrick Forge in Sunday afternoon, like a jazz club with amazing jazz dancers. And there was lots of parallels with Latin and all these different scenes. 
And with Bar Rumba, I think we just suddenly, I, we realized that, you know what, we, we st- the, the bandwagons moved on too much. I don't think we we're going to be able to sustain it. So it was, so it was called Bar Rumba because it was going to be a Latin club. But then I changed the programming and I approached people like Giles Peterson and various other promoters and gave over each night. We still had a Latin night on a Tuesday, which was really popular. Um, but all the other nights became much more like current mm-hmm. in terms of music. So the Monday night was called That's How It Is with Giles Peterson and James Lavelle, who went on to do Moax Records and uh, is part of Uncle, the band. And I guess that's where trip hop really made its mark in, in, in London via that, via the club. And then they were playing early drum and bass stuff and we started a night called Movement with some other promoters who now manage DJ Marquis, Patif, Brian G and Jumping Jack Frost were the, the core DJs. Um, and again, I think we were lucky because we were right there at the right time when Ronnie Size won uh, a Mercury Prize mm-hmm. and then he decided to come down and celebrate that after the Mercury, and then it, you know, it was just rammed week in, week out. And those were the days where you could sustain a club, a club night during the week, not just a weekend thing, which is pretty much now, you, you know, you can't do it. You just, that concept doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, it's such a shame. Such a shame. Well, I don't know. I don't say if it's a shame. It's just, it is what it is because it was, you know, the days of licensing, like pubs would close early. So if you wanted to drink late, You'd have to eat or pretend to eat or go to a club. Also, if you wanted to, you know, boy meets girl, girl meets boy, boy meets boy, girl meets girl. Before the internet, even early days of mobiles, how are you going to meet people? You go to clubs. So, and if you go somewhere where you've got a shared common interest in a particular style of music, well, you know, you've already got a link. So when, I suppose, you know, with internet, the nece- that sort of drive of meeting someone um, became something you could do, you know, you could arrange to meet on your mobile during the day. You didn't have to go to a club. And, and also that the general sort of um, devaluing of music via the internet, you know, that's leaked into all levels of music now. Yeah, I never even thought about it, really. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, so anyway, going back to the Latin thing. So that Barumba, you know, I kept elements of, of Latin in, in the programming I was doing. And um, when I did some nights at the Wag Club, we also I, I was putting on bands like African Head Charge, but I'd also put on a Latin band one week. Uh, we put Ja Wobble on, who was doing this kind of post-punk stuff. Ja Wobble at the time, he'd already left Public Image Limited, which was... Johnny Lydon's band from Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols. Mm. And um, and yeah, Joe Wobble, I've always been a bit obsessed about bass, bass uh, and I used to play the bass. Um, so Joe Wobble was someone I worked with quite a bit. And Natasha Atlas, who you met, used to be Joe Wobble's singer. Mm. So... So well. Yeah, and then there was also Talvin Singh, who was an amazing tabla player. Who's, who's also part of that group. Um, then there was sort of all Asian side with uh, Asian Dub Foundation, um, 
very fundamental, various other people. This is through my work for a label called Nation. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's always all, everything's all a bit tangled up. So there isn't really any. But it me, sounds like from there's what you're no saying, me, Bob me, is kind of like this fork in the road where you started to really diversify the set um, within that club, and then yeah, so the, the the club became very you know with different styles of music on different type, on different nights. The weekends would be more house and disco, uh, funk, hip hop on Sundays. Um, you know, it, it was there was a point where people like. Um, Wesley Snipes would come down on a Sunday night, and also Mar Mariah Carey came down. Uh, the Monday nights we had Bjork used to come in, because we always used to do a jam session as well with, with Giles and James, and Bjork used to come and sing. Uh, you know, it was just like every night, it was just like, oh, I can't believe this, this is I'm in heaven. And, um, you know, I was really pleased to kind of, you know, facilitated it. You know, I'm not taking all the credit, that's for sure. But... Um, yeah, also, you know, all things come to an end, and um, I moved on after a while um, and did my own place yeah. in called Cargo in, in Shoreditch. So I moved over to Shoreditch, and Cargo had, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to have some working with guys who had some money. <laughs> yeah, so I, that was for the first time where I had sort of proper ownership, because up to that point, I was always working for other people, and giving them all my ideas and making them money. Certainly, as far as clubs and programming, so I thought, you know, it's it's time to to do it for myself, really. So we did Cargo, which was great. Ten years, lots of live music, Shoreditch, you know, just on the up. And that's when I got involved with the Big Chill Festival, because again, via the Latin stuff, I got approached by Bacardi. Because I, I'd sponsored, when I was doing all the Latin clubs, we sponsored a Latin sound system in Notting Hill. Okay. And I approached Bacardi and said, would you like to, to sponsor this truck? So it's a truck, it was a static truck, but mm -hmm. a huge system. And um, before that, there was a Latin sound system, but they didn't, never had any money. And there was one guy, they'd take turns doing this to the amps all day, because <laughs> they would overheat, because they had such a small rig. So I said to them, look, guys, look, why don't you give me some slots so I can program some of my DJs? We were the same people playing for them anyway. I'll get Bacardi and the club's Salsa Cuba Havana to, to sponsor it, and we'll have a huge sound system. We'll take and we'll just take over the whole street. Mm. So we put this massive sound system. And one day was Brazilian and one day was Latin. And we, it was uh, on the Goldborn, no, Portobello Road, just by Goldborn Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used, to, we used to do a deal with the local chip shop for power. Um, and even that wasn't enough. So then we had to get a generator the following year. So I, I, I got Bacardi involved and they were like, wow, this is great. We love it. Um, and then they said, right, we want to do, we want to take this music to festivals. Mm -hmm. So they said, would you like to program it? I was like, yeah. So we, I started doing this Bacardi B-Bar, it was called, and it started off as like a Cuban shack. We went to Glastonbury. <clears throat> I had some Cuban dancers. I had Cuban, um, you know, really good DJs, but it was very pure Cuban. Mm. Martin Morales used to DJ for me, who's now a chef and has uh, uh, Andina and uh, Ceviche. And Giles would play, Giles Peterson and... Mm. So the first first year we did Glastonbury, we nearly got tarred and feathered, because we were like one of the, Bacardi was one of the first brands 
At the time, there was no brands in, 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 in this experiential marketing wasn't really, was, it was quite new mm. as a concept. So the fun-loving hippies were... No, they were, they were out. And I remember saying, what next? You know, Budweiser sponsoring. And sure enough, Budweiser did sponsor it, you know, a few, five years later. Because, you know, the, the, the economics were such that you can't, you can't do these events without sponsorship. Unless you're going to charge the customer ridiculous prices to go in the first place. So, you know, it was just a ne- you can you could look at it as a necessary evil. It was a trade-off, yeah. yeah. It was a trade-off, yeah. So we, the, the, the Cuban Solidarity Movement were, were very anti-Bacardi. And, you know, I, I think they got a point. Mm. You know, everyone, there's a point. And Bacardi were part of, you know, the pre-revolution problem. Mm. You know, they, they, they did have, you know slavery and plantations. Uh, Cuba was one of the last countries to abolish slavery. Um, so Havana Club, you know, which is state-owned rum, which has now done a deal with Pernod Ricard and being just as commercial as Bacardi. But maybe Bacardi was pretty right-wing, especially in the States. Mm-hmm. They were actively sponsoring uh, insurgencies into and uh, the whole Miami Cubans. Were really, So yeah, I got to find out a lot about this you know i was like hey i'm just i'm just a music guy you know but um so yeah the the cuban solidarity movement tried to steal the sound system one night and then they spray painted the the tent so it was all pretty exciting uh obviously my cuban friends who were playing were just like you know we just want to play music you know just want to have a good time we want to promote cuba anyway so doing the bacardi b-bar became more and more accepted and uh we did uh reading Leeds festivals, which are rock festivals. Mm-hmm. So I started programming people like Ashley Beadle and uh, Scruff, um, uh, Norman Jay, mm-hmm. Kerry Chandler, and we kind of veered, started moving away from pure Latin, but always had very percussion, percussive, and that kind of feel. Um, so uh, through Cargo, I was doing this at the same time, the Big Chill was an amazing festival mm. you know it kind of i guess some people could say it's that sort of beige music it's quite inoffensive chill out and the philosophy of the the, the chill out room um and ambient music you know this the, it, it suits it lends itself as as a, a, something different from like a reading or a full-on kind of rock festival anyway they went bust um and they were looking for someone to get involved. And having seen what was out there and can see that I, I thought, you know, the whole boutique festival thing was the way to go. And we were given the opportunity of becoming partners with them. So it was a bit of a love-hate thing because, you know, I think they didn't take kindly to someone coming in and saying, look, you need, you you need to be a bit commercial. You know, you can't be pure. If you want to stay pure, well, you, you tried to be pure and it didn't work. So you've got to work together. But it's a really fine line because when we got involved, you know, we kind of pissed off the core crowd. Mm. And then they, I remember they used to call us the big till. And you're like, okay, guys, well, you know, do you want, do you want this to try? Should we try and carry on somehow or should we just forget it? So we managed to do it for seven years. Mm. We brought cocktail bars into festivals working with brands again and we did the big chill bars which are still going and yeah we did fail in the end um 
the year of the recession, mm. when the ticket sales just dropped, uh, just catastrophe. You know, it was just unbelievable. You know, and there was nothing you could do once you're already sort of you know halfway into the prep and the, the build and you've got the programming artists you, 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 the yeah you've yeah. negotiated the artist fees and what, what you can't suddenly go oh, sorry mr burn um, will you take half the money um you know you can't do that so it's very difficult to to cut back and then there's a the whole psychological thing of you know if people think that you, you, your tickets aren't selling you know people of course yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the herd mentality, isn't it? I'll go if they're going. If no one's going, oh, they're not going, I won't go, blah, blah, blah. A little bit of that. Yeah. I mean, maybe at the time it was that felt stronger, but now maybe less. But, you know, you could look at Glastonbury that sells out instantly because people know it's going to sell out. Yeah. If you don't get to that stage, you still have to work hard to persuade people to, to, to make that, that purchase. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, the big chill... Um, was good while it lasted yeah brilliant um and then you moved on so you've got a bit further afield you've gone somewhere sunny now so we did croatia um, what, what year are we talking 2010 mm-hmm. so the big chill, big chill i was trying to export the big chill we, we did one in goa um in goa yeah and then we did one in prague oh wow and there had been one which british council had sponsored a mini sort of big chill in in egypt before my time, before our time, yeah. uh, the cargo and that group of guys. Um, but um, yeah, so I went to Croatia because I was trying to take the big chill to Croatia. Mm-hmm. But the new owners weren't interested. And so I said, okay, I think I'll just do this myself. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been difficult. And it's never really made money. Mm. It's been, it's been, you know, it's been great, mm. <laughs> but maybe an expensive um, experiment. But not everything works, you know. You, it's impossible. So this year, which is would be the seventh one, we're actually teaming up with an existing festival, um, Electric Elephant, and oh. we're, we're going to host a stage with them. So we've we've joined forces because. The competition is too fierce. Yeah, there's and there's, so many Yeah, and there's yeah. Two, there's, there is actually, it's, it's saturated. And oddly, there's, there's parallels with what happened with the Big Chill because, you know, we did, the Big Chill, I mean, I, I wouldn't say uh, Bestival is, you know, Bestival is Bestival, but certainly a lot of the ideas behind Bestival mm. were, you know, there at the Big Chill. And Rob the Bank used to come, and his him and his wife used to be there all the time, and used to play. But listen, I'm not I'm not saying that you know um, he's managed to to make it uh, you know grow and survive and become something amazing and uh, respect. But there was an awful lot of small, um, very similar to the Big Chill, uh, which again, just like Croatia, you can't really stop people's you know trying different things. Why should they just stick? To you, you know, and there's also a little parallel with artist fees and that whole idea of music being being devalued, because yeah, artists don't make sales, so they they rely more on their artist fees for live. You know, they've got agents who are ramping things up all the time, and uh, you know, it's a fine fine line where suddenly, you know, your artist bill is just ridiculous mm. and if you do it one year you've got to do it the next and you can get down this kind of 
Yeah, you know, this it's a, it's a vicious circle. I suppose it's spiralling costs, isn't it? Before you know it, your overheads are massive, and then you... Yeah, it's a downward spiral. Ticket sales. The big, Unless you can kind of get yourself to be, oh, yeah, you're the place to go for breaking new artists. But that works with a certain type of person, ticket buyer, who wants to be totally upfront. But then usually those people don't want to be in a busy place. They want to be in a small, you know... I think volume equals mass market. You can't necessarily be super cool and super big. I mean, it's, I mean, Glastonbury is, I guess, cool and big, and so is best of all. Mm. And I suppose I, I, I analogise Glastonbury to London in the way that it's, it's loads of little districts within it, so it can be cool within a, a larger framework. Like now we're in South East, like yeah. it's a little cluster of it. So yeah, I suppose cold, that's yeah. how it does it. Coldplay on the main stage exactly. at Glastonbury is not cool. It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. just totally mainstream. Yeah. Right, let me check my final question. I think... What, to, what prompted you to dip into radio? That was my... Uh, radio... Well, so where did that come along? Well, radio was quite, kind of... I always... I did a bit of radio. I did some pirate radio um, in really... I did some uh, student radio um, in Long Island. I did a show or two with a friend, this girl I knew out there. I really enjoyed it. I liked it. I just thought the concept of broadcasting was amazing. And then I did some pirate stuff on the Harrow Road. Again, a Latin show on a pirate radio station, which was in an old um, Afro, in the back of an Afro barber's shop. And uh, it was really... (laughs) But the the thing, I remember going and doing a show in... How do you have room? They're always so busy. (laughs) Well, no, it was out the back. And my show was like three in the morning. Uh. And... um, it was out the back, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was this. They had these really big, uh, you know, those things for drying hair. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they had really big seventies ones for afros, I guess. They were enormous, <laughs> and it, and and the desk was in between these, this crazy old, um, I guess you know, hairdresser's kit, and it was and it was leaking, and you had to keep moving the decks because there were leaks coming through. And I did a show, and what I used to do is before I'd leave the house, I'd press record, put a tape on, and it tune it and record, mm-hmm. and go and do the show. And I think the last show I did, I didn't do many, but I literally it was like, "Good evening, you know, this is Chris." Blah, 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 blah. And it went shh. And what happened? I found out. So I was there for two hours. The transmitter'd be nicked by another pirate station. So I'd just been broadcast, just playing to myself merrily there for two hours and I thought you know I can't do this <laughs> this is like pointless but um yeah I got involved with SOAS Radio um Carlos Torino who set, set the station up friend of mine and um it was a time in my life where things there was quite a lot of changes and um I was some people said oh you should do a blog you know and um because you've got obviously a lot to say and it'd be interesting and I think blogs were starting to become a thing mm. And uh, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do the, the radio as a blog rather than, than a blog because then I'll use the music and talk to people and use that as a, as a kind of um, platform just because just had, to, you know, to express myself in a different way mm-hmm. but stay in the music kind of realm. And the good thing is Science has got this really a hardcore website with tons of memory because it's a university so every single show mm. is is on there mm. so it's it's five years plus 
of radio shows are all there, still there, which is amazing. That's great, yeah. I'm only slowly knocking through the archive on Mixcloud, but I presume that's just the tip of the iceberg. No, I think Mixcloud, that's all the ones are on Mixcloud. I think Mixcloud are there as well. But the thing is, on science, they're downloadable. Ah. They're not on Mixcloud. Yeah, Yeah, you can actually download them. So they're all stored there. So that's quite interesting. And then when when I just discovered you a couple of months after, you... Oh, well, I thought you were up sticks and left for Mysore, so what's this? No, Mysore, um, Gordon Mack set up Mysore. Gordon Mack's a real pioneer legend in, in radio. He, he founded KISS FM, and he was the driving force for KISS FM when it was a pirate. And again, it was something I was glued to, you know, basically black dance music um, being broadcast. And he fought... And, uh, getting more and more, I wouldn't say disillusioned, but it wasn't what he, he set out to be, you know, pl- playlists. And, uh, you know, I would say KISS FM now is pretty close to capital mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of commercial radio. And, you know, it does what it does, and yeah, a lot of people nice. like it. Yeah. So My Soul is his So My Soul is his new thing, and it's in, he's got a studio in the Stephen Lawrence Centre, which is a beautiful building designed by David Adjaye, a really well, good um, architect. That? It's in Lewisham. Oh, okay. So... Uh, a lot of the DJs, like myself, sort of 45 to 55 from that era. You've got Greg Edwards, Jazzy B, um, Calvin Francis, who was on Choice, and Choice became Capital Extra. Um, some really good DJs. Greg, Greg Edwards, which I mentioned earlier, Bob Jones, Patrick Forge, Ross Allen. Ross Allen used to have an amazing show on BBC Radio London and used to... It was a really good show. And... Um, so yeah, so that's just gone DAB. So it's DAB across the London area. Mm. It's just had its first set of Rajar figures, which is a, a radio um, assessing numbers and who's listening when and stuff. It's like a marketing thing. But it's, it's, it, they've been really great. Positive, yeah. Yeah, so we, I mean, it's got advertising. And yeah, so I do a show on that weekly, five till seven in the morning on Sunday. So I mean, I'm back doing radio in the middle of the night, but yeah. I quite like it because, I don't know, it's quite an interesting time of day. And obviously with time zones, you know, it doesn't really matter mm. and podcasting. So I get different um, mixes every week uh, and I've been drawing on all the, my contacts and I've had mixes from South Africa, guys making, you know, South African music, house music. Mm-hmm. I've had a mix from Colombia, Sidestepper. I just did one for me recently, a guy from Croatia. Um, what have we got coming up? And also I've asked different um, artists to make playlists. So, mm-hmm. so that was like the show with, with Natasha, Natasha, yeah. But she'd also made me a playlist. So I uh, used that on my I soul. That one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, a little, so she's like an expert on Arab music. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it's kind of, uh, this might sound really pretentious, but World Music 2.0 is a good way of describing what we do, what I do on that show. So it's electronic, it's not your kind of folk roots, Mm -hmm. Peter Gabriel, real world interpretation, WOMAD interpretation of world music. Although really, you know, know, everything is got electronic, uh, but more and more that kind of... um, I don't want to say urban because it's not really urban. You don't want to say ghetto because it's not really ghetto because it's country music as well. But it's it's music being made currently in these places, um, far and wide. Mm, mm, mm. 
And I think it's great doing SOAS, which is a, maybe a bit more academic and a bit more far-reaching, possibly, with all the alumni from SOAS do listen to the show, and that's great when you get feedback from somewhere like really far-flung. And My Soul is a little bit more London. And, uh, yeah, the two the two work well together. So it's... it's um, yeah, it's it's funny how everything is kind of connected. It's incredible. And now, like, sit, sitting here right now and having reminisced with me through this, but did, can you see the links? Did, did you, was there ever any point where you sat down and you were like, yeah, I know exactly where I'm going to go from here. I'm going to do this, this and this. Or was it, it feels very like a natural progression of this link opening up? I wish I could, you know, I mean, you know, I'd, if, I don't know. It'd be great to... No, basically. <laughs> there is no, there's no plan. I don't know. I've just, you know, I've been lucky enough to keep working and doing interesting things most, most of the time. You know, we'll have to sell our souls to the devil at some point. But, you know, luckily I haven't had to do that too much. Hi there, guys. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I certainly did. Fantastic chatting with Chris. And how many stories has he got, eh? Awesome. So if you enjoyed it, Please tell a mate, share the podcast on socials, whatever you want to do. Leave a review as well. That really helps. to, um, So it just helps people find the show. Essentially, it's how iTunes is calibrated. And uh, subscribe for loads more incredible chats to come. If you missed the episode before, check it out. It was an amazing chat again with my mate Jamie Sparks. Epic, epic bloke, adventurer. He had six Guinness World Records at the time we chatted, I believe. Rode, was part of the youngest pair to row the Atlantic and then rode the Indian Ocean afterwards. Just hell of a guy. Runs uh, Wadi Rum, the ultra marathon in Jordan. Epic bloke. So check that one out. And then next on the roster, we're having Steve Crabtree, who's the editor of BBC Horizon. So the big names keep running in thick and fast. And following that, we have an itinerant poetry librarian by the name of Sarah Wingate Gray. She travelled the world for four years as a makeshift library. So unbelievable stories to come from her and a polymath uh, by the name of Carl Gombrich who also runs the course at UCL that I did arts and sciences. So he was a professional opera singer and then he went and did a couple of degrees as you do and then started in academia. So amazing stories yet to come. So like I said, subscribe and I'll see you in the next one. Thanks for listening. Remember, uh,